Uh, hi. Uh, welcome to the 37th episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. Um, uh, I hope you don't mind I'm actually recording my intro in the queue at a fast food restaurant. Uh, so, um, as I was saying, this is Known Pleasures. This is the podcast where Mark, Patrick and I discuss the music and culture of the post-punk and new wave movements of the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, in the description, you will find a link that will take you to a Spotify playlist that's made just for this episode. You'll also find a link to our Facebook page, our Instagram page, and also you'll see our Twitter handle, at PleasuresKnown. Okay, so I believe it's Mark's turn to introduce today's band, so... Oh, hi, yes, um, I'll have a cheeseburger, thanks. When late-night talk turns to the turbulent musical period known as post-punk, three names invariably crop up. Joy Division, Wire, and Gang of Four. Like some sort of unholy trinity, they remain standing like not-so-silent sentinels lighting the way forward. Here at Known Pleasures, we've already twisted ourselves into knots over wire, and despite our name, are still afraid to tackle Joy Division. So, Gang of Four it is. From 1978's spiky Damaged Goods EP, through to 1983's pop-tinged Hard, we'll try to explain why this gang of former art students deserve their Champions League place at the post-punk table. So, Gang of Four... It's yep. been a long time coming. It's a big one. <laughs> well, we had the great privilege of uh, interviewing the guitarist from the band, Andy Gill, in um, 2019. Episode 20, if you'd like to check it out. And uh, sadly, he passed away a few months after we interviewed him. Yeah, so ever since then, it's been, when are we going to do Gang of Four? And we've finally got around to it. And I think we've been a little bit intimidated because they are sort of part of that post-punk holy trinity. But here we are, or rather... We're in Seven Oaks in Kent. Because we like to start at the start, <laughs> don't we? In a town fairly middle class, uh, south of London, where Andy Gill and uh, the singer of the band, John King, grew up. They met when they were about 13 or 14. They went to Seven Oaks School, which was a uh, very privileged school, says John King. It had borders, so it was, it was that kind of You mean place. like fences around it? <laughs> <laughs> it was... yeah, they didn't let in just anyone. No, or let you out either. Mm. But uh, John was quite working class, but he got in through like a kind of a grant sort of scholarship type thing. They got along very well, even though um, John says that they didn't have a book in the house when he was growing up. So he says, so no, I wasn't reading Das Kapital at the age of 10. <laughs> so the Gang of Four reputation as being extremely serious, well-read intellectuals was not necessarily the case when, uh, when, they, when they were in primary school. <laughs> they decided to form a band. Early on? Uh, in school days. One of the early bands was called Bourgeois Brothers or Bourgeoisie. We can't quite decide. Brothers, no. We? Yeah, but it sort of sets the tone, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> One of the bands they played in, they played at the school ball and their music was made up, riff-based and regified. Which sounds a little bit like Gang of Four. It does, yeah. Well, I mean, Andy had been playing guitar for a while, though, hadn't he? He was a big Hendrix fan. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Early on, which would be no surprise to anybody. No, no, that's right. I think that's they right. also bonded over Dr. Feelgood at a later stage and Free. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Andy Gill's playing was a lot like Wilco Johnson. Yeah. Very mm. much so. I think he had, had that formed in his mind quite early. But Free was quite riff-driven as well, that song All Right Now. That's mm. the biggest yeah, yeah, hit yeah. of theirs that I know. And then the two of them went to university in Leeds up north, so in the other kind of part of the country. And uh, what happened next? 
I think they were doing arts degrees, weren't they? Was it fine art? Fine right? arts. Yeah, I think mm. John John wanted to be an artist. John mm. King. That was his whole kind of thing. I think the music thing was just a sideline. I mean, I guess they kicked around at uni. How old would they have been there? Uh, this is about probably seventy four. Mm. Yeah, because they were born. John King was born in fifty five. Andy Gill fifty six. So yeah, 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 around about there. So we're talking September seventy six. Mm-hmm. Uh, John King, Andy Gill head off to New York on an arts grant kind of. Uh, Junket, I think the technical <laughs> term is. Stayed there for six weeks in Greenwich Village. Uh, spent a lot of time at CBGB seeing television and the Ramones and uh, Patti Smith and whoever else was kicking yeah, around there yeah, and were yeah. kind of inspired by that. I think Andy um, referenced this in our interview. He said they stayed with a, a girl called Mary Harron. We were basically sleeping on the floor of Mary Harron's flat and Mary Harron subsequently became a very well-known film director. Who was a journalist for a New York magazine called Punk. And uh, she has quite an interesting checkered career. Um, she once dated Tony Blair in her younger days. Wow. She made documentaries for the BBC and she wanted to be a film director. And I don't, do you remember I Shot Andy Warhol? Yep. yep. And uh, also she did um, American Psycho. So she had. Uh, she did all right. She, she did, did all right for herself. She did all right for herself. After looking, shall we say, looking after Gang of Four while they were in New York? The nascent Gang of Four. Maybe tour guide, perhaps. Okay, so they they returned from that to Leeds where Punk had started to kind of make Mm. inroads. Does that sound about right? Yep. Because they'd been friends and done a bit of music previously, they decided they were going to form a band. Late 76, 77, they came up with the name Gang of Four. A reference to Chinese Communist Party power brokers during Mao's final days. So the band set their stall out early. So, what sort of band yes. they were going to be. Are you saying China had their own gang of four that weren't nearly as popular as the UK one? They were somewhat unpopular among certain parts of the Chinese community, oh, really? as, I, as I understand it. I, I read that they saw a, it was a newspaper headline referencing mm. this mm. Uh, gang of four being on trial, and so they said, that's a good name, we'll take that. It was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing as well. I heard that it was Andy Corrigan, who was a member of the Mekons. Who, who suggested the name. Another local suggested band? The name. Yeah. I've got here early gigs in April, May 77. I think Hugo Burnham had come on board. Another? Another lead student, yeah, had come on board. Uh, had a different bass player for two or three gigs until uh, they decided uh, this guy was a little bit too airy-fairy for them and they needed a new bass player. Placed an ad at the local student union, which mm. said... Said they were looking for a player in a fast rhythm and blues band, and that's... Now, what rhythm. was that again, Patrick? Rhythm. How do you spell that? How do you spell that's, that? Um, <laughs> thanks for asking. R-I-V-V-U-M. See, there's a university education for you right there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and apparently the spelling was a code for Dr Feelgood. And you'd need to know Dr. Feelgood's back catalogue better than I do to get the reference, but apparently it was. Dave Allen got it. He knew he was in the right place. Auditioned uh, for the band. Dave was not especially political himself, although, uh, yeah, he he was from even further up north near Scotland in uh, town called Kendall in the Cumbria area. And apparently if you didn't vote Labor there, you were run out of town. So you didn't need to be political in Kendall because... You either voted Labor or you got beaten up. <laughs> so this was like a Western, wasn't it? He was run out of town. Well, you and I from around here, that kind of thing. <laughs> Apparently Dave is very proficient, though. had done a lot of uh, jazz uh, playing, pop, all kinds of styles. Um, very proficient musician. Was mm, into mm. his Stevie Wonder and wanted to do something like that, but heavy. So he was into funk. He knew how to play that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I heard that he was big on the meters. Remember the meters? Yeah, yeah, the meters were the great. The meters were like, they were a funk band, but like a really minimal, like bare bones yeah. kind of funk. Kind of tough funk. 
So the classic lineup was the now classic on. lineup is now in place. Was let's now say there. summer '77, mm. and you can see why. As Andy Gill wanted, uh, he said the idea was to unpick new music, whether it was disco or funk, and put it together in an original form to consider every last drum beat. Look, I think the interesting thing about this this early incarnation is that they were really into their their funk. I mean, they talk about Parliament, they talk about Earth, Wind and Fire, all these, as well as reggae and, and mm. other influences. But not many bands would have openly. Um, Profess their admiration of that style of music at that time, as you probably remember. Yeah, disco and uh, forms of funk weren't particularly cool no, at that right. time, even though they were cool, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they definitely brought that to what they wanted to do. They wanted to introduce that element of space and even danceability mm, to, to punk, mm. which certainly wasn't in place. Yeah. I mean, John King famously says, "Look, never mind the box was great, the Sex Pistols album, but it was basically speeded up Black Sabbath." Which is a little bit harsh, I think. Um, not that there's anything wrong with slowed down Black Sabbath for that matter, but mm. yeah, I think it's a little bit rough on the rest of the punk bands. I mean, uh, yeah, okay, it's a, it's a point, but Gang of Four wanted to go somewhere different with it, mm. and um, they certainly did that in '77. Started playing with the Buzzcocks uh, national tour. Yes, they uh, harassed the Buzzcocks sufficiently to be given a uh, gig. Supporting them just outside of Leeds, I think. November 77. And then they got on a bit of a tour with them, which was the, the kicking off point. Yeah, and also led to their uh, first EP with uh, Fast Product. Fast Product, based in Scotland, had put out the Mekons' uh, first stuff. And so in June 78, Gang 4 recorded the three tracks that would be their debut EP. Can I just say that I don't know whether you can uh, back this up, Mark, but I think Armalite Rifle was the first... Gang of Four song that I ever heard, because Triple can I back up whether you heard that? <laughs> no, more more that Triple Z played it a lot. Triple Z, ah. the Brisbane public you, radio station. Let, let me just say that again. Triple Z, the public radio station in Brisbane, Brisbane, Queensland, in, in Brisbane, Australia, in Australia, um, the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that they used to play Armalite Rifle a lot because when I listened to it recently. In the last couple of weeks, it just rung a bell with me. Like I, I, mm. I, I knew it from back in the day when they were playing, you know, Sex Pistols and Buzzcocks songs. Well, that would make sense. It would be it would be towards the end of '78 that that came out. Mm. I mean, they they did play Anthrax, but I, for some reason, I heard Armalite Rifle a lot. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, it was a triple A side, essentially. They, they're calling Damaged Goods, Love Like Anthrax and Armalite Rifle, which made a massive impact. It was like top of the indie charts. or mm. sort of basically they were off and running because it sounded so different to anything else. I mean, mm. we talk about these sort of how fast everything moved, but 78 and 79 was where the post-punk thing really, really happened and so many doors opened and so many different types of music came out. You've got the feedback thing with Anthrax, which is really quite unusual. I don't remember any punk records yeah, utilising yeah, yeah. feedback. It's feedback with space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, 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 that's the, the trick. Thing. It's so empty. All of these tracks mm, are mm. so spacious. Yeah. There was a, a specific thing where uh, John and Andy trained Dave to play about a quarter of the number of notes he was capable of playing. <laughs> and that's such a feature of the sound and it gives the kind of feedbacky kind of guitar just such a distinctive quality. Mm. Are we going to go to the first album? Well, I suppose, it. yeah, I think we should because I think this had such an impact, this EP, 
that you know everybody was waiting for this album. You yeah, know? and yeah, it was. Yeah. I do remember there was a real hype around them. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that you know I was all over Gang of Four in '78 because I wasn't, but I do remember the kind of press coverage that you'd sort of see about them and you know, yeah. really talking about them doing something quite different. And I think people bought into the whole political aspect of it as well. Mm. People really liked this kind of left-wing pseudo-Marxist kind of mm. philosophy behind it because it suited the times as well. The artwork for that EP, there was a dialogue. Well, it's a complicated story, but there's a photo of a matador and a bull and the band had written to Bob Last, is yep. that right? At, um, At Fast Product. Yep, and said something like, can you put speech bubbles here where the matador is saying something like, this isn't what I would like to be doing for a living, but it pays twice as much as a normal nine-to-five job, something like that. And the bull is saying something like, at some point we have to take responsibility for our actions. <laughs> and Bob Which is like, pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. For, for a absolutely. DAO serious yeah, group, yeah, yeah. it's pretty funny. But it seems like kind of profound social theory, you know, in its own way. But the brilliant thing Bob Last did was put the photo on the cover and the letter on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> and so, which was very um, postmodern, for want of a, of a better term, and situationist. Yes, as well. yes. And I'm already using a term that I don't really understand, and we'll get to that later on when we're talking about all sorts of other things that mm. none of us understand. That Gang of Four talked about a lot. <laughs> I pretend to understand it. But, um, <laughs> That's all that you, matters. You guys are going to have to help me on that. <laughs> yeah, but look, we should talk about entertainment. Can I just say that they recorded entertainment in the workhouse? which is a studio on Old Kent Road. Now, if the Monopoly board has taught us anything, (laughs) I imagine this was in a bad neighbourhood. They obviously couldn't afford a studio on Park Lane, but um, (laughs) they could have stretched the budget to at least Northumberland Avenue. There was was a train station right next to it. Somewhere purple, surely somewhere (laughs) purple. Well, they they were on EMI at this point, which is really interesting in the the indie sort of world to do an EP that does well and then go straight on to a major label Mm. that had previously made a complete balls up of having the Sex Pistols on there, mm-hmm. uh, EMI mm-hmm. this is. To go to EMI to do their first album was a really interesting move and, and a lot of people thought it was a bit of a sellout but Gang of Four would have said it was the, exactly what they should be doing, mm-hmm. going yeah. to the belly of the beast and trying to sell mm-hmm. this message on a major scale. To take down the system from within. Exactly. Any band that says they don't want to be heard will never leave the garage. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that's exactly the point. EMI were quite an eccentric company at the time because I think they had Wire, Wire were, were on EMI. And Kate I think, Bush? I mean, the likes of Cliff Richard were as well. Pink Floyd. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They, I think they got a bad rap because of the Sex Pistols kind of thing, but they actually were quite open to doing interesting stuff. Mm, but yeah. the A&R guy was mad about Gang of Four. I had heard the EP on John Peel's show and basically decided he had to sign them, saw them live. And it's a credit to EMI. Um, they, they made a decision when recording this to not decorate the music with overdubs or mm. multi-track. They just let them get on with any, it. Yeah. Any effects. I didn't yeah. even sort of realise it until I, I read that and then I went back and listened to the album again and there is nothing there. There's no compression, there's no reverb. There's, but that there's was all part of the Gang of Four ethos. Everything yeah, had to be yeah, rigorously yeah, yeah. kind of yeah. like deconstructed and is, is using reverb rockist and is it some sort of redundant term that we you know, we shouldn't mm. do that anymore. So everything was argued about until but, it was reduced down to this is exactly the pure form of the music we should be doing. Yeah. <laughs> what they did is that they, getting back to EMI, they gave them the album and they went, is this the demo? Yeah, is this a demo? Yeah. <laughs> and they went, no, no, this, this is it. This is the album. Well, because it doesn't didn't sound like anything else and still doesn't. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I think, what people really loved about it. But to the record company's credit, 
they put it out? Well, I think the deal was, and they took a lot less money from EMI than, than was being offered, that mm. they had complete artistic control. They had to take the tapes as they were and the artwork as they were and release them as they were. There was no second-guessing it. There was no going back and changing anything. Mm. So yeah. that was the artistic freedom that they demanded from EMI and that EMI agreed to. So you get an album and think it's a demo, well, that's what you're putting out. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah. and what an album. I mean, it still sounds, as you said, Graham, still sounds incredible. Mm. There's so much space in it. The thinness, the brittleness of it. Andy Gill refused to use any kind of warm amps. Everything had to be transistor amps, so he mm. didn't want that big riffy sound. Though he's a mad riff player, <laughs> yeah, but everything's yeah. really choppy and harsh. Um, it, yeah, I mean, still listening to it now it blows me away. I mean, we, we could talk about the songs and the sound of this forever. Well, at one point, Martin Hannett had been mooted. Of Joy Division and a certain ratio fame. Very good, yes. I'd, I'd forgotten that he worked with Joy Division and a certain ratio. <laughs> Shall I remind you? <laughs> and the idea of having that kind of Joy Division-esque production on, on Gang of Four. Can it's you like imagine Andy that? Andy Gill's head would have exploded. <laughs> Absolutely. He's probably turning in his grave as we speak, <laughs> just thinking about it. Should we talk about At Home He's a Tourist, the, the single? Yes. Off the album, which had started to climb the charts. Great track. Mm. I think back in those days, once you reached number... 40? Was no, it top 30? 30? You, know, you, you were top of the pops. You were allocated mm. a top oh, of the pops right. yep. appearance. So anything could happen in those days if you got got into that sort of yeah, yeah, rarefied yeah. atmosphere. And so, of course, Gang of Four being um, Gang of Four turned up and you had to record your appearance. So you didn't mime to the song. You recorded your track again and then mime yeah. to it, which was a strange way. Something to do with musicians. It's to do with yeah, the yeah, Indians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 At home, he Um, there was an objection to the line, um, this is well known, a preference in condoms in the track, the, the, yeah, yeah. the rubbish you hide in your top left pocket. Yeah. And the producers wanted them to change that to rubbish. Which is weird because rubbers wasn't even a UK term. Was no, it? it's an American yeah. term. Mm. But they wouldn't change it. They said they'd use the word packets. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they refused to do any compromise on that and walked off the show. Of course, the, they had no appearance on it and the, and the single. And they were replaced by? Dire Straits, according to uh, John King, who says, when I die, I can see myself at the gates of heaven with St Peter saying, well, on the one hand, you've been a good man. On the other, Sultan's a swing. Sorry, downstairs, mate. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but typical of Gang of Four, there's a dispute about that. I think, is it Hugo oh, Berman? Yeah, says yeah, it's yeah. your mate sniffing the tears instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not yeah, Dire yeah, yeah. Hugo says that that story definitely isn't true. It definitely wasn't Dire Straits. So, yeah, that story comes... With a big disclaimer, but... It's so Gang of Four, they can't agree even on that. <laughs> so like Wikipedia, citation needed? Yeah, yes. yeah, that's right, that's okay. right. Can we just I do... just really like the punchline. It's, of, a, it's uh, a great story. story. I just would like to talk about the sound of this was all about avoiding cliches. Certain words were banned, certain sounds were banned. It's, it's so kind of rigorously enforced mm -hmm. that you end up with this fantastic product, but it must have been an absolute nightmare to make and the amount of fighting and arguing, yeah, even yeah, though yeah. John and Andy are obviously directing everything. Yeah, Every yeah, little yeah. detail of this was apparently argued about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just sounds like it was such hard work. Yeah. Well, I mean, Hugo says we were four very different people. There were a lot of arguments and fights and withering remarks. Andrew had the capacity to be very unkind, which was quite frequently. We were like brothers and fewer people can be as mean to you or hurt you as much as your brother. And I've played in bands and, you know, you guys have played in bands and it's really almost endlessly intense if you get a particular combination of personalities. That, and you always do. That has friction. Mm. And 
No, but in Gang of Four, it seems to have been maybe more more intense than in other combinations because John and Andy had known each other since they were kids and they were both pretty kind of strong-willed individuals, especially Andy. Yeah, well, Andy definitely had a vision of, of what mm. he wanted. And a song like Anthrax apparently was even mapped out before it was written about what it would be like. It would have this section, this section, this section before the song was even you know, actually written. That's how <laughs> organised it was. I, I guess we could, yeah, we could talk about our favourite songs on here, but Not Great Men, it's got like a James Brown thing going on in it, that bass line. Like, I think that's a really mm. interesting kind of take to have that in September 79. Um, the song Damaged Goods, of course. I found that Essence Rare is more like a traditional song almost. And Natural's yeah. Not In It is super funky. There's just funk in there, which you just weren't used to hearing from a so-called punk group. Not that mm. they, they called themselves that, but that's what... The, all these bands were lumped into the same kind of... Yeah, they weren't up. a funk band either. No, just, they certainly weren't a funk sort band. Sort of a groove band. Earth, Wind and Fire wouldn't have called them a funk band. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, September 79, it reached number 45 in the UK charts, which was deemed a bit of a failure and mm, probably off mm. the back of tourists not, not getting into Top of the Pops, mm. the whole album... They, they were disappointed. The record company was disappointed and the band was disappointed. Mm. Graham, you probably heard this album before the two of us, I think. Is that fair to say? Being well, substantially older? Interestingly, <laughs> I... <laughs> interestingly, it was just after my 40th birthday. <laughs> what are the young people listening to, he yeah, said? I was just wondering what my kids were listening to. <laughs> and they um, their kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, as I said, Solid Gold was my first album, so um, I went back and listened to this album later. Mm. But from the opening song, Ether, I think you knew you were hearing something a little different from everything else that was happening at the moment. But I want to talk about Naturals Not In It because I think that song really, for me, sums up this album. It starts... Andy's guitar starts very straight and then the drums come in It's and it's still quite straight, four on the floor. Mm. But then the bass comes in and Andy changes his strumming to something more syncopated and at that point the song really takes off. And that is kind of what I loved about this album and Solid Gold as well, is that you were listening to musicians that came out of that punk era but they were challenging that and giving us something a little different to listen to and maybe something to dance to mm. i think i've said to you before i like not great men and uh 545 is another great song guns before butter i've always heard that phrase but I read recently that Herman Goering actually said, said yes, he, he did. said, guns will make us powerful, butter will only make us fat. I kept wondering, why, why do they choose butter? Mm. And he was a fat guy. <laughs> he right. knew something about that. So, so, so he, did, he chose butter. <laughs> he chose butter. For guns. I think we should talk about how massively influential this album was because of all Gang of Four mm. albums, this is the one that yeah, obviously yeah. resonated, particularly in America. I've got quotes here from Michael Stipe from R.E.M. 
Gang of Four knew how to, sw- to swing. I stole a lot from them. To the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Flea saying they were the first rock band I could relate to. Michael Hutchins said they took no prisoners. It was Art Meets the Devil via James Brown. And even Bono uh, was a fan of their hard, angular, bold sound. So, it, it, I mean, we could go on and on about yeah, the number yeah, of re- yeah. uh, bands. Well, Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers says specifically of the song Not Great Men, mm. the groove laid down in that song is the first thing I put on my turntable to show somebody what shaped the sound of the rookie Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm. Well, there's a photo of Flea naked. Uh, em- embracing, I think, Andy Gill or John King on stage at a gig a few <laughs> of years like, before he was in the Chili Peppers. <laughs> oh, so really? I, d- I, I don't recognise his backside, but the photo says that's him. <laughs> mm, the, um, um, which, which, given their propensity to strip off all the time, I should know his backside. But, uh, yeah, apparently he was such a massive you know, yeah, yeah. fan. There actually is a version of the Red Hot Chili Peppers playing Not Great Men on YouTube. It was quite recent. It's no place for great men. It's not made for great men. But when you hear it, you think it, it doesn't seem odd that they're playing it. No, no, so not at all. It, it I mean, I, they I, weren't a million miles away from. I think it. the Chili Peppers are an obvious one, but I, I, I think this album had a massive influence on American rock, mm. uh, and you know, your Nirvanas and other people as well. For some reason, I don't know why it went over a lot bigger in America, but they did play and tour there a lot off the back of this. So maybe that has something to do with it. Mm. They did mm. a hell of a lot of gigs in the states. So we, we can agree that this is a, a massively influential album to this day and probably yeah. staked, staked their claim yeah, yeah. to this day. Paddy, well, where, where did you first come across this? Well, I heard a couple of songs here and there on the local public radio stations in Melbourne. I loved what I heard. I mean, I heard them a little bit retrospectively, you know, because I was maybe 15 when the album came out and I wasn't yet allowed to listen to grown-up music. (laughs) (laughs) Still (laughs) listening to the wheels on the bus, were we? (laughs) (laughs) Your mother was a tyrant. (laughs) It took me a while. I'll never forgive either of my parents. (laughs) But I loved what I heard, but there were always other bands that were sort of more prominent. But I love this album. It's amazing. All the songs you've already mentioned it is just a completely unique sound it's funky but angular and square and peculiar and really ironically given the kind of friction in the recording studio it sounds like an utterly unified band and album as if they ticked off every single note every single beat Mm, every space Yeah, yeah 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 they had a vote for every gap Mm. And it's impossible to imagine entertainment without the specific contributions of every member. So it's slightly ironic that, you know, the band does have a reputation for being slightly kind of tetchy with mm. each other. I have a good story about where the, the title of the album came from. You probably know this as well. The band had been um, playing some gigs up north where there was a stripper and a, a comedian also on the bill. And uh, they, they didn't take too kindly to that, so they're heckling the, these poor performers. And after the show, either the stripper or the comedian or both sort of said to them, look, you know, I'm just trying to make a living, you know, we're all in the entertainment business, you know, so let me let me do my thing, you do your thing. And so I think John King was said, you know, entertainment, okay, well, that, that, that's what this is and that's uh, entertainment exclamation mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what it is. Everything will stop when you change And also lyrically, the lyrics are unusually clear in some ways for the post-punk era where there was a lot of kind of shouty stuff, a lot of kind of like lyrics that weren't very distinct. But the lyrics were really prominent given the sparseness of the music and 
Now, they were very interested in the role of the individual in society, the way the individual was controlled by society, not so much by the government of the day, but by the kind of systems, the infrastructure. Convention. That, yeah, they cover a lot of ground in this album. They cover the troubles in, in Northern Ireland mm. and, uh, yeah, all sorts of things that I didn't know much about because I didn't study political theory. But um, Andy Gill did say we weren't really Marxists and John King uh, said that I would try to write in plain English but English that was twisted in some sort of way. I feel we have slightly failed if you have to do background reading. Personally, I hadn't read a word of Baudrillard. I think that makes four of us. Um, What we were doing wasn't intellectual. It was from the gut, like painting a picture. But... Dave says the lyrics talk about the commodification of the individual, mm. so, which is interesting given that Dave was the one who hadn't been to university, so he was... <laughs> he was and, and felt a bit out of his depth. Mm, he, was, he, yeah. he was certainly talking the talk, and I think it's a good summation of where they were coming from politically as well. So we can agree it's a massive landmark in post-punk. Oh, absolutely, mm. yeah. And, and a good record. And a great record. Still sounds good. And, and the, the shockwaves are still being felt today. Absolutely. Should we reference the next release, which was um, not till a year later? We're mm. happy to move on to the Yellow EP. The Yellow EP, October 1980? Yeah, I think it, it's important because Outside the Trains Don't Run on Time was on it and he'd send in the army, which are great tracks. Continuing down the same track, mm. um, I'm not sure how that uh, charted, but it was certainly uh, certainly noteworthy. Uh, Graham, did you hear any of these at the time? Apart from hearing Armalite Rifle early on. Um, well, that was re-recorded. It was, it was a this, re-recorded version, yeah. 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 I didn't have this EP. Well, it wasn't on my radar at all. No, fair enough. It's good, though. Check it mm-hmm. out. I want to talk about the next album, Solid Gold, produced by Jimmy Douglas. I'll talk about him in a minute, at mm. Abbey Road, the famous Beatles studio. Now, Jimmy Douglas is a really interesting mm. choice of producer. He's been around a long time. He's done stuff like Foreigner. He's also done bands like Television, involved in Television. But his most interesting band in relation to Gang of Four is Slave. Um, you would know Slave, I think, Graham. No, no. I don't. They were an American funk band. They hit with the track called Slide. If you listen to it, you'll kind of get it. And I can see why the Gang of Four selected Jimmy Douglas. I don't know why Jimmy Douglas agreed to it because it was completely out of his wheelhouse to use one of your Mm, terms, mm, Graham. mm. Uh, But I think he found something interesting in them after seeing them live and decided that he could maybe add to them. Though He did say to to John King that he thought the lyrics were schoolboy stuff. And what are you talking about? Didn't like John's lyrics. No, didn't like the lyrics and kind of didn't understand what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... And this, I've told this story a few times. I was a Gang of Four fan at this stage and this album came out in March 81. I found it in a record store on the Gold Coast and I had to have it and I had no money because I was at school and I was living out of home and I shoplifted it. So <laughs> it was very clever. I Can I just my, add at this point that it's wrong to shoplift? It absolutely if, if is wrong and I listening. don't condone it. Kids don't do it <laughs> unless it's solid gold. <laughs> Gang of Four <laughs> had to have it. I took that record home, put it on, and the first track, Paralyzed, completely vindicated my decision to steal this record because it is still one of my favourites and it is just mm. an awesome track. It's muscular, it's full of space, it just blew me away. Mm. I was in the process of forming my own band with some friends at that time and I was just like, well, this has just gone to another level now mm. I don't even know if it's worth trying. Fantastic album. 
Um, it's been described as bleak and tuneless, but I don't find it like that. I find it just really relentlessly hard and funky. I like the use of the melodium, the reggae kind of touches mm. in there as well. Um, I know I'm going on about it, but outside the trains don't run on time. A hole in the wallet swings like you wouldn't believe. What we all want. Great track. Hard for me to go past Paralyzed, but um, mm, mm, mm. I do absolutely love this album to this yeah. day. It still sounds fantastic. Well done, Jimmy Douglas, who's now a big hip-hop producer yeah. <laughs> these days. So he's still around. Yeah, still yeah. Still kicking yeah. goals. Guys, yeah. sorry, I, I took that uh, one over a little no, bit. No, no, Jimmy did specifically say about the lyrics. He said they were writing about rich schoolboy subjects and politics in London. It was like, we're never going to sell any of this, which I think is, is uh, Jimmy kind of mm. saying this. And he said, they said, we don't care. But he said he had a great time and it seems as if the recording process was happier. A bit easier. For, yeah. the, for the previous album because it wasn't those two, yep. as in John and Andy taking everything over. It was, it was just, it was divided out a bit more, I guess. I they, think having a proper producer involved who's yeah, got experience yeah, yeah. with how to manage the egos yeah. and, and also they would have to defer to him a little bit and go, right, well, he actually does know what he's doing. One thing that I found interesting about this album was that it came out roughly 18 months after the previous album. Yeah. And it sounds very similar to entertainment, almost like part two. And what's interesting to me about that is how much bands were capable of changing during that era. I mean, The Cure, a few months before entertainment, released Three Imaginary Boys and Faith came out a month after Solid Gold. And so they'd gone from three imaginary boys to faith. What about 17 via seconds? 17 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't leave that. During, during the same period, yeah. that Gang of Four went from, from their first album to their quite similar sounding second album. And I'm not saying that Gang of Four should have changed their sound. It's just indicative of how focused Gang of Four were on their, their vision. Their and, manifesto. Yeah, their manifesto. yeah exactly, exactly. Well, yeah, and they played a lot of gigs as well, so they're really honing what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this album is a massive influence on a lot of bands. Um, certainly in Australia, I can hear the sound of that through a lot of our own yeah, post-punk yeah. bands, like your Hunters yeah. and Collectors and, and others. Graham, you said this was your first proper inter- this introduction. Was, this was my first uh, uh, Gang of Four album I bought. Like you. Yeah. No, um, no, I didn't buy it, remember? Oh, that's right. <laughs> Sorry. I thought we covered that. I forked out $6.50 for mine. <sighs> Big man. He had the bucks, you see. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, I was, yeah, you know, yeah. living on the street virtually. <laughs> the albums only cost $3, but I, I, you gave I, them I, I paid Mark's share as well. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad for this guy here. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I'll get this for you. I'll get this for you. Interesting you mentioned the melodica. I thought a unique thing about Gang of Four was that they use the melodica and it features in a couple of their songs. And I thought to myself, surely not many other people have used this, but I did a bit of a search. Millions of bands have used the melodica. Joy Division used it, New Order, R.E.M., the Chili Peppers. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Steely Dan famously used it. Okay. Um, I know we shouldn't be talking about Steely Dan on a post-punk like podcast, but they had a song called Peg and um, there was a, they used the melodica there. So, yeah, quite a common yeah. instrument. But it's used mm. in reggae a lot. I think that's where Gang of Four would have picked mm. it up. Yeah. 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 Well, New Order used it quite a bit. Yeah, right. I love uh, this uh, Paralyzed. You spoke about Paralyzed. There's really jerky rhythms. But even though it was all kind of stop-start and everything, there was still a... A funky swing to the to the whole song. Yeah. What we all want has a great chorus. The hole in the wallet. Uh, 
was a great funk piece. And we, we've spoken about his send in the army. It takes a, a one minute 30 before the song starts. And um, I also love Cheeseburger. I also found there's not many choruses. It's kind of just really linear, this album, which is, which is mm, very post-punk. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They just travel in a straight line, these yeah. tracks. There, there are a couple of songs which have really persistent, insistent bass lines, mm. which is almost like a, a preview of what Shriekback are going to be doing Ooh. Uh, in, in years to come. You and, mean Dave, and, the, Dave Allen, the bass player of Shriekback? Yes, the, the, the future <laughs> the bass future. player. He hasn't left yet. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and entertainment didn't have those. No. Kind of, that's what I'm saying. I think it's a much funkier album. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so, I, mean, I don't uh, know that that's the right term for what they're doing, but it's yeah, definitely yeah, got yeah. more of that funk element to mm. it. Yeah, more no, of absolutely. that meters kind of sound you're talking about too, mm, Graham, earlier. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Should we move on to? Well, I like if I could keep it for myself. Thanks for asking. Oh, and what are your favourite songs? <laughs> you, you can just edit that out. <laughs> and in the ditch, and several others you've already mentioned. <laughs> I think this is this is a great album. I liked entertainment. Yeah, I, 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 like I, I definitely put the two albums. I together was going to say they're of a piece, and it's funny. Mm. Most most of the fans would say the same thing that the two albums are yeah. of well, and that mm. makes sense. It didn't get universally good reviews. No, though. but mm. it also came out as you say, eighteen months after the landscape had changed a lot by mm. nineteen eighty one. Mm. Yeah. Well, Nick Kent in NME said he thought the album was repetitive and, and clumsy, which is pretty harsh for an album as good as... <sighs> Look, no wonder Sid Vicious whipped him with a bike chain because, <laughs> you know, I can't agree with that. Well done, Sid. <laughs> <laughs> OK, can we move on to the Another Day, Another Dollar EP? From January 1982. Nick Lorne producing. He was only 21. He'd already worked with Killing Joke, Public Image. Um, birthday Party. Birthday Party. He'd done uh, Release the Bats. So he was used to dealing with um, prickly personalities like John Lydon, Nick Cave and uh, and our old friend Andy Gill. Mm, mm. We've got To Hell With Poverty, which is a fantastic track. Mm. Uh, Capital, It Fails Us Now, which I love as well, has three different bass parts in it. Sadly, this was the last recording that the four original members worked on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave Allen was to leave soon after this worn out. I like the comment that Andy made about Capital, it fails us now, bearing in mind that Dave Allen shared a name with a famous Irish comedian who would be known to... to um, a nine-fingered re- comedian. Yes, then what, nine-and-a-half-fingered Nine Nine-and-a-half fingers. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. I was going to say no extra finger, but if you say yeah. half. So uh, he'll be known to British... Irish and Australian uh, listeners. Ironically, Andy says about Capital, it fails us now, that the lyric is coming from the, not the Dave Allen, but the Benny Hill end of Marxism. <laughs> and I don't know what the Benny Hill end of Marxism is, but it's a it's a really it's, funny lyric. It, it, it's, like, it's kind of in fast motion. Yeah, it? I think it's every man for himself. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a there's a lyric in, in that song about like a newborn baby reaching for for a credit card and and then realising it's in his other suit. Yes. That that kind of That's thing. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Benny Hill. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, uh, Nick Lorne says that pr- the production process was really enjoyable. He had a good time doing this, um, mm. you know, which once again the band seemed to struggle and they really were reaching a point now, obviously, 
things were about to fall apart. As I said, Dave Allen was to, to leave after mm. this in the middle of the US tour. Yeah, well, it certainly seems as if they got along really well with Nick. Hugo said Nick Lorne was the best producer we ever worked with. And their sound did seem to be moving in, in a slightly more produced kind of way, courtesy of the Nick Lorne type thing. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, Nick Lorne, speaks about this recording as, you know, one of his favourite recordings he's ever done. And he's done a lot. Mm. Yeah. So shall we talk about the falling apart? Yeah. Uh, I think Dave Allen has been quoted as saying, the bass player, that he felt he was out of his depth intellectually. He, he wasn't able to understand a lot of the concepts that the band uh, was was on about, which is really interesting because, like, he's such an in, important part of the band. Mm-hmm. But there seemed to be this constant conflict that drove them all and he just felt that he wasn't able to operate at that level. And I think, mm. you know, it's no secret that Andy Gill was a bit of a bully in the band, you know, not in a physical way, but would certainly shoot anybody down that he felt wasn't at his mm. level. Uh, and him and John being big mates, I think it was obviously yeah. the two of them versus the others. And uh, Dave talks about just trying to cope with this you know, feeling of inadequacy. It's Absolutely. about that perceived education gap. Yeah, I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. He felt anyway, and that kind of class thing is yeah, really that's a really crucial important part. in the UK. Not that the rest of Gang of Four were were kind of upper class, but the kind of education university gave education, you yeah. a certain um, gravitas. Yeah, absolutely. Cachet. Absolutely. Any more? Statue. I'm really pleased for Dave that he left when he did because his description of it, you know, my decision to leave was based on being utterly lost Mm. personally and in relation to the group. You know, it was kind of like leaving was sort of like a a cry cry for help in his his own way. So, Yeah. yeah. Very sad. But he went on to do fantastic things with Shriekback not Shriekback, too long after. one of after, my favourite bands of the who time. Who we will have to cover because we mm. love Shriekback. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They were great. In the middle of the tour, they managed to replace him very quickly with um, Buster Jones, bass player. Who'd Buster Cherry Jones. Buster Cherry Jones, who'd worked with uh, Talking Heads and also had worked on My Life and the Bush mm. of Ghosts. Fantastic yeah. bass player, hard partying bass player. Well, I think uh, on My Life and the Bush of Ghosts, Eno Byrne. I think he wrote the bass riff on the song Regiment, which is absolutely fantastic. So I could imagine him fitting in really well. Apparently he was able to learn the songs in about 12 hours. I mean, but he was a very, very top-notch muso. Died very sadly of an overdose at 44, but was able to pick up the mantle. But he left... And who was he replaced by? Well, I think he was poached by the Rolling Stones. That was the rumour anyway. Um, he was replaced uh, by... That's the, not the same Jones, is it? Sorry? You said Buster Jones was poached by the Rolling Stones, did you say? Yeah. Is, isn't that <laughs> isn't that Daryl Jones you're thinking of, the guy who played with Sting? No. You may want to go back and have a look at this. There are several Joneses in the Yeah, he was, he was poached by... The... <laughs> That's, it's such an unusual name. I just... <laughs> um, can we get back on track? I'm looking forward to hearing that edit. edit. <laughs> so I think... The famous Jones edit. <laughs> How is Graham to know that there were two Joneses? <laughs> it's it not exactly make, a common it name, is it? <laughs> it's a real noggin scratcher. <laughs> so here we are. The Gang of Four find themselves in uh, early 82 without a bass player. What to do? Mm. They decide maybe they might have a woman bass player because that would fit in pretty well with everything. And she could make lunch and things. <laughs> That's got to go. <laughs> um, they approached Sarah Lee, who had been working with Robert Fripp. 
mm. in his League of Gentlemen uh, yeah, project. Yeah, yeah. Very good bass player. Uh, basically a hired hand to continue on with them and start working on their third album, Songs of the Free. Now, it would have been a bit of a challenge for Sarah, I guess, to sort of step into this boys' club and um, learn these songs, but I imagine the rehearsals went quite well. With Sarah on board and a new producer in the form of Mike Howlett, Yes. My old mate. All of your favourite producers are coming up. They are. This is why I love going for. Mike Howlett, the former bassist in Gong, also former member of Strontium 90, Sting, Andy Summers and uh, Stuart Copeland, mm-hmm. pre-police. I um, like the pause before you mentioned the third me- member of police going, there was a third there guy was in a the third police. Was, what was Who that guy's drums? name? I can never remember him. <laughs> Should we talk about Songs of the Free? Because it didn't get great raps when it was released. Mm. But I actually quite like it. I like the progression. I mean, Sarah does a great job on bass. She's great on bass and vocals. It's a less aggressive bass style, but the whole album's a bit more atmospheric, less riffy. I really like some of the tracks. I love Man in a Uniform. We'll talk about in a little while, which mm. was banned. But overall, you guys would have come across this album, released it, yeah, as I say, in I, I, I May 82. it was amazing. I really loved it. I don't think they have become a different band yet, like they did on the next album. I still think this is, you know, still his hallmark guitar playing. It may be a little bit more tempered. Mm. And the vocal melodies are a little stronger. They have uh, backing singers now to fill out yep. the sound. Yep. So unlike the, the other albums, Instead of listing my favourite songs, I've just written here that I just love the whole album from top to bottom. It was just, to me, it was just really strong. It's more atmospheric, I was going to say. You've, mm. got, you've got a sort of a suite of tracks like Life, It's a Shame, History of the World and Of the Instant that are very, very thoughtful and, and atmospheric and sort of almost quiet. Right now, to touch flesh is real. With some sort of more of a conscious lyrical style, it's a bit more personal, possibly. Mm. Um, I also mm. love We Live As We Dream Alone. That, that's a fantastic mm. lyric as well as a fantastic song. Everybody is I almost feel guilty liking this album as much as I do. But yeah. <laughs> uh, even just for Man in a Uniform on its own, which I heard at a nightclub, you know, uh, that's the first time I heard it, like, to dance to, which I, I don't think I'd have heard a Gang of Four song in a nightclub before. But the idea of them selling out, can I just say, I don't think that really holds up because when you look at a song like Man in Uniform, I mean, sure, it's more accessible than anything on their first two albums, but it's not really hit single material. I mean, it's not the sort of song that would go to number one around the world. Mm. It's not as commercial as Aha or something like that. Yeah. No, no. You know, I don't it, think anyone's it, suggesting it's, that. It's but still, it's, it is it's a departure from Solid Gold, but no, you've got absolutely. a completely different bass player involved too. Yeah, mm. yeah. A uh, good friend of mine at university, Jens, bought this Hi, album. Jens. Yeah, Hi, Jens. Bought this album. So this was the first Gang of Four album that I really kind of listened to and listened to a lot. And 
I loved I Love a Man in a Uniform. And initially I was a bit disappointed by the album because it sounded a bit too similar to, to that single. But I quickly came to absolutely love the album and it's definitely my favourite Gang of Four. I was going to ask, is it your favourite? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think the mixture of the new technology the electronicness of it. There are electronic hand claps to be heard, but the mix of the old and the new, again, it's fantastically crafted. You know, every hand clap, every bell sound, every backing vocal, every... Every space. This album just feels completely unique and unrepeatable. It didn't sound like anything else at the time. It doesn't sound like anything else since. It's, you know, it doesn't sound like any other Gang of Four album. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I love pretty much every song on this album, the only kind of reservation that I had about I Love a Man in a Uniform is that it feels a little bit rushed in the lyrics because there are like lyrics repeated where you think, oh, you don't need to repeat it, just, you know, come up with a, you know, another couple of lines. You should have been there, Patrick. You should have produced the album. <laughs> you should have corrected him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe you agree with the BBC banning the track because of the Falklands War. I think it um, it came out just as the ships were starting to sail off towards the Falklands mm, and mm. so the BBC went, we're expecting casualties in yeah, about yeah, 20 yeah. hours so this track's not going to get played. And as John King said, we wouldn't ban more than the Sex Pistols. So they had two two bad bannings yeah, that really yeah, affected yeah. their uh, chart performance. Yeah, I yeah. mean, we should point out that none of these albums particularly charted in the UK. Um, no, that's I, right. I think Entertainment was 45, but Solid Gold, Songs of the Free, they're not even listed as chart positions. And in the US, they're in their sort of mm. 140s to 150s sort of things. So yeah, they yeah, didn't yeah. really make them any money. Mm. Hugo Burnham was managing the band at this time as well. I don't know whether that had something to do with it having your drummer managing you as well. It's mm. going to be a bit problematic. Well, that's not going to go in the That's <laughs> not going to work well, no. Um, we, so we can agree we, we do like this album despite yeah, yeah. what maybe what the band think of it. But, um, yeah, I love it. And I really like the production on it as well. Yeah, it yeah, sounds yeah. a little dated. It is a bit 80s, but I, I do love having a bass player produce an album. I think it's a good idea. Mm. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Can I mention that at this time I think they played – a show at Rock Palast, I think it's referred to as. You can see this on YouTube. I did re- listen to an interview with um, John King and he seemed to think that David Byrne ripped off his moves. Oh, right, right, right. And if you ever see this uh, Rock Palast video, John King is wearing a beige suit. It's not a really big beige suit, but he's wearing <laughs> a beige suit and he starts to dance and it's exactly like David Byrne. So I don't know whether David Byrne would have seen it at all. It, sure I think it's probably have. just, I think it might have been just a coincidence. But I think mm. that David Byrne is, is, you know, a bit of a magpie in that sense and he's brilliant at that. There's no reason yeah. why that wouldn't have happened. Mm, mm. Next thing you'll be telling me, the Talking Heads ripped off Joy Division. <laughs> Yeah, that's for another podcast, bro. <laughs> Shall we move on to the final album? I'll just say um, about the song, uh, The History of the World, there's a line in there, um, when I was in my mother's womb, social structure seemed a simple thing. And I just think that line is hilarious, as well as being almost like a band slogan, like summing up the band. It's like the social structures that are going to kind of define your life, that are going to restrict your freedom, your creativity and all that are yet to come. Mm. But it's going to happen, kid. (laughs) (laughs) I think Gang of Four, uh, you know, are not given enough credit for their sense of humour because some of the lyrics are very funny, Mm -hmm. you know, and I guess it's not obvious all the time, but some of it's very, very good and it's a little Mm. bit rough on them that they they don't get some of that credit. Okay, hard. September 83. No one lives in the future. No 
Hugo had left by that stage, is that correct? Hugo had left, so you really just reduced down to the two mm. uh, of well, Andy Gill and John Hugo King. Hugo had been um, asked to leave the band, I think. That's right, he was um, taken aside. By John, who said that, what, they were sick of arguing all the time. I think Hugo and Andy used to argue a lot mm. about and quite sort of heated arguments as well. Hugo left uh, and formed a band called Illustrated Man, mm. which included Rob Dean from... Japan, Japan and two Australians, uh, Roger Mason, who had been in Gary Newman's touring band, as was Dean. Uh, and Roger Mason also played in The Models, who we featured in an earlier podcast. And the singer was a fellow called Philip Foxman, who had played in the band Supernaut in the 1970s. And Supernaut being the first band that I ever saw live right. when I was 12 years old at the Horsham Town Hall, and that's Horsham in rural Australia. He had quite big hair in those days. Um, well, they were like a glam rock band. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before yeah. becoming a punk band. Yeah, well, that's right. And the song Head Over Heels by Illustrated Man is pretty catchy. A very different look for Philip. Apparently, uh, Noel Rogers was in the frame to produce this ah. album. Apparently, Andy um, was a little jealous of Green from Squiddy Paletti getting to work with Arif Marden. Oh, on the Cupid and Psyche album. Interestingly, the Gang of Four guys really liked Cupid and Psyche. Oh, it's a fantastic album. And, it's worth um, a podcast on its own. So they thought, Nile Rogers. Well, Nile Rogers obviously being very famous and well-known as the guitarist from Chic, why wouldn't you? Mm. Uh, he went on to even bigger and better things. But apparently he wasn't, uh, they weren't able to seal the deal with Nile over percentage points of royalties and so on. So the manager couldn't quite agree on what Nile should get for doing the album, so they didn't go with him. They went with a couple of guys called the Albert Brothers, who were Miami-based. Uh, Miami Sound Machine? Their interesting claim to fame is that they had invented something called the Fat Albert drum sound, which involved miking up all the separate parts of the drum kit, which... Prior to that, hadn't been done. Uh-huh. So having a mic on the hi-hats, on the kick, yeah, yeah, yeah. snare, everything. They just had overhead mics. Generally, back in the day, I mean, when you had started to get 24 tracks, you could obviously have as many mics mm, as you like. Mm. But that was their signature, their claim to fame, this uh, Fat Albert drum sound. Weirdly, this album doesn't feature any real drums. <laughs> That's what I find strange about it. <laughs> they yeah, put yeah, mics yeah. on every electronic drum kit. Every there. electronic mm. drum kit. So you've just got uh, um, Andy Gill, uh, mm. John King and Sarah Lee on this one and no drummer which is a bit of a departure, shall we say. There's parts of this album that I really like, but it does sound like they tried to sell out and make a pop album. I don't know if they did, Mm. but you've got backing singers there. You've got Alpha Anderson from Chic as one of the backing vocalists. Mm. You've got, uh, apparently they were very much influenced by trying to sort of do a bit of a Heaven 17 who'd had a lot of success with taking Gang of Four's template and turning around becoming a commercial success. It sounds to me like a band who'd been influenced by Gang of Four (laughs) rather than Gang of Four themselves. A song like Is It Love, the opening track, has got some interesting stuff. I think Silver Lining is a great track. A Man With A Good Car I quite like as well. Um, mm, Graham, mm. I was going to go out on a limb and say this is your favourite game. It's Four not my favourite, but I love it. <laughs> I still think um, Songs of the Free is still mm. my favourite, but I really liked Hard. My favourite song is called I Fled, the falsetto melody, and he, he was using his falsetto voice, a mm. lot, really high voice. Mm. So falsetto uh, melody in the chorus I think is just perfect. 
silver lining, as you say. Uh, the only constant is kind of Andy's guitar, I guess. But it, once again, it's a lot more. But it, it's all it's all very tempered. Like mm. it's like everything's it's just sort of damped down <laughs> string stuff. It's not we're using, like feedback. Yeah, we're using compression at this point. Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, yeah. Even Sarah Lee's bass playing, and I love her bass playing. But even it's a bit more disciplined on, on this album. It's it's not as wild as on the last album. <laughs> A Man in a Kutka, It Don't Matter, and even um, tucked away at the end of the album is a real, some killer melodies on independence. Mm, and that's mm. a song that I didn't really listen to at the time. I think it's a good album to finish Gang of Four in this incarnation because they broke up not long after this for quite some time. Uh, Paddy, did you... It's a bit reminiscent for me of what uh, Psychedelic Furs did in terms of going from an organic rhythm section to something more electronic on the Mirror Moves album Mm. and where it just feels like there's such a huge loss not having a real drummer for a band like Gang of Four. Mm. And I think they were really brought back to the pack like quite a few bands around that time. Um, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark was another one, Devo was another one, where they just started sounding a bit too much like everyone else who who was around. And I think that's what this album suffers from. Well, there's the way you mic up a drum kit, there's the player. Yeah, yeah. uh, How the the producer treats the drums. Mm. There's a lot of variables there that can alter the way a band sounds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A drum machine is a drum machine. If you have a Lindrum and everyone else has a Lindrum, songs are going to sound pretty much the same. Not that there's anything wrong with drum machines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do love um, A Man With A Good Car. Peace of My Heart is really catchy. Uh, independence, um, as you say. And I, I guess my feeling is that if those songs weren't by Gang of Four, I'd like them more just because of my... I was going to make that point. I think it's unfair to compare hard to the previous Gang of Four albums. If it was stood on its own, you'd probably give it a lot more respect, but it's 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 in really good company. It's standing in the shadows <laughs> yeah. of three fantastic albums, one of which is yeah, an absolute yeah. landmark album, so it's, it's always going to suffer by comparison. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's a little bit unfair on it. Yeah, um, absolutely. But it's a, good, it's a good spot to sort of almost end the Gang of Four story, though we should talk about having seen them. Uh, several times over the years in their various Be- incarnations. Before we leave their recorded product, did yes. you guys hear the song they had on the Karate Kid soundtrack? <laughs> I didn't think so. They had a song I called... I think you could be adding crickets after that, Graham. Yeah. <laughs> or... <laughs> There's a song called Desire. and um, Recorded around the same time? It was recorded around the same time, but it was after hard. It's very synth-oriented. Even the slap bass sounds programmed. Is a drum machine. I think a lot of fans would hate it, but I quite like it. But it was recorded around the same time because Sarah was in the band for, I think, two and a half years or something. Mm. So she may have gone by that stage. Maybe that was why that was... I'm not quite sure, but it's interesting to know that they, they came to them and said, uh, you know, can you guys do a song for The Karate Kid? And they, they thought the screenplay was stupid, but they went, okay, let's do it. And then they said, listen, we've got another one. It's um, 
a really fit girl who's a welder in Pittsburgh, studies in her spare time to become a ballet dancer and ends up in dance school. Can you write a song for that? And they were like, no, that sounds like crap. And that was Flashdance. Probably for the best. (laughs) They were getting a lot of offers to do soundtrack work at the time. But yeah, that, that's it for their recorded album. That's it for mm. well. That's where we're stopping anyway. They they mm. pretty much broke up not long after this for quite a long time. Mm. Though, uh, as I as I was saying before, we have the three of us have seen them uh, myself three times. You guys have seen them twice mm. in their various forms. I saw the original lineup in uh, June twenty fifth two thousand six in London at the O two Festival, which I was very fortunate to see the original four members, and that was sensational. That was the first time I'd ever seen them. Uh, yeah, they yeah. never never came to Australia. But they didn't in come heyday. to Australia during the again. Journey. We miss yeah. out. It's it's hard flying the post punk flag in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> but we did see them, the three of us, a few years ago with John and Andy. Uh, did you say that was what year? Uh, 2011. 2011, 2011. which was fantastic. The young mm. bass player they had in there was great. Mm. Really enjoyed that show. And it was in a real kind of pub. Yeah, kind we were of up environment. Close. So there were like four hundred people. Seeing Gang of Four in a sweaty kind of pub environment yeah. was absolutely fantastic. Probably my favourite gig of the last ten years. Yeah, mm. yeah, sensational it was. And then, of course, as we mentioned earlier, we saw them not long after we interviewed Andy in two thousand and nineteen November. But it was just Andy at that stage, um, yeah. which has caused some ructions in the Gang of Four camp for him to go out on his own. Where do we draw the line under Gang of Four, guys? How do we how mm. do we end this? Because it's a pretty momentous move for us to you know tackle one of the real big players yeah, yeah, of the yeah. genre. It should be pointed out though, talking about them live, is that three of them are back together now and touring America. So fingers crossed, mm. they'll come to Australia because I'd yeah, yeah yeah I'd love to, I've never seen. Sarah Lee play live, and I think, as I said, I think she's great. And you love player. Sarah Lee. I love Sarah Lee. <laughs> You're a big fan. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Just to let our listeners know, there's a moratorium on making Sarah Lee frozen dessert jokes. Damaged baked goods. Dam- yeah, very good. Very good. <laughs> there, I don't want him. I'm not. I, I'm, I promise you, I'm not going to do it. Good. Thanks, guys. I'm out of here. Yep. <laughs> Boom. There's the door shutting. <laughs> Patty, Gang of Four, your yeah. take. Uh, well, utterly unique. They did what they wanted to do all the way through, particularly the first, second, third albums. They didn't sound like anyone else. They were doing exactly what, what they wanted to do. And they kind of defied description, despite like all of the kind of the ways that people have talked about the band. You know, James Brown meets the devil or, you know, like the, the Hendrix stuff and the whatever else. It's like they defy labels. And it's, well, as Kierkegaard said, if you label me, you negate me. And Gang of Four uh, refused to be labelled. I would agree with that. I think for entertainment alone, they stand as one of the absolute pioneers of the sound. They took it very, very quickly somewhere else. Um, one of my favourite quotes about the band is from Greel Marcus. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his name. But he described Gang of Four's music as the sound of people thinking. And I think that really, really resonates with me because... Every time I listen to them, I hear something new, and the, and the lyrics alone are worth investigation, but the music is just unique, powerful, has space in it, makes you think, and makes you dance. You can't ask for more than that. I only got one Wayne's World reference in. Wayne's World? Mm. What was that? Was that Kierkegaard? Yeah. Because when you said that, I was going to say, you sure that wasn't uh, Dick, Dick Van, Van Patten? Patten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's what triggered it. 